0: You know, we had to learn how to take care of a child with a trach and a ventilator. I mean, he was on the he's on the ventilator twenty four seven. So we had to learn all the medical side of caring for him, which was exhausting. As he's gotten older, we've had to deal more with the emotional side. Eight, nine, ten, he was having emotions about not being able to do what the other boys were doing, not being able to play soccer like his younger brother, not being able to uh, play video games like his friends because his hands were weak. Right now, I would say that uh, there's a lot of anxiety because now that he's older, he knows the risks of things that could happen to him. I mean, if he comes disconnected from his ventilator, he cannot physically put it back on. He cannot breathe. So there is nobody there then he will not be able to breathe. And he knows that.
1: Welcome to Take Heart, a podcast about creating space for connection, hope, and joy as a mom to a child with disabilities or special needs. We want you to feel connected and encouraged as we navigate this messy, emotional, joy-filled life together. Hi there, it's Carrie today, and you're listening to episode 156. This episode is entitled, How God Creates Purpose and Meaning from Our Pain. This month on the podcast, we've been covering the topic of what we wish we would have known. I was honored and privileged to have my friend Erica Weesey on the podcast. She and I have been friends for almost 25 years. And in this conversation, we had a great discussion about denial, how to find community, and how we can find purpose from our pain. Erica has a lot of wisdom, and I'm so excited for you to hear about how God brought about our friendship because he gets all the credit and the wisdom that she shares from parenting a 20-year-old son with a disability. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Erica. Thanks for being here. So excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So first of all, if we can remember, can you, do you remember the story of how we first met? Well,
0: I remember that uh, you knew my mother first because we went to college together And you worked at the bookstore with my mom, and my mom would talk about you, but I had never met you before. So um, I didn't meet you, I don't think, until we were at the same church together and we were in the singles group. And that's how we got to know each other. You were engaged, and I was dating my future husband. And so we went out on a double date together. I think we went mini golfing maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah I remember we did. That.
1: Yeah, we did.
0: <laughs> so I remember we went out on
1: that date. And then uh, just after that, we hit it off and we started hanging out more. I remember, I think, like taking turns going to your apartment in our house after you and Carl got married, watching Amazing Race like every week or something. Oh yeah, I remember that. That was fun. I think that dates us a little.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably yes.
1: So then, fast forward, and I want to tell our listeners like Eric and I's story. I talk about it a little bit in our book, "The Other Side of Special," and we don't share a story to brag about how we've been able to support each one another, but but to tell the story of just God's grace and goodness and how He orchestrates every detail of our lives and. So then we we end up going on vacation together. We start talking about how we want to have babies. And I remember, I feel like I told you right away that I was pregnant with Connor, our oldest.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think you told me and then I found out I was pregnant very soon after that. So it was so fun to be pregnant together. And you're talking about all of our plans and dreams that we had. That was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it's so crazy. So Eric and I are due three weeks apart with our first kids. And I, so my due date, I think was like July 12th or 13th. And when were you due was with first, Evan? I
0: think August 1st. Yeah. It was the beginning of August. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we're just a few, just a few weeks apart. And then I'm scheduled to finally be induced. like. On July 25th, in the morning, I'm going to go in. I'm almost two weeks overdue. And and then you call me Thursday. I think we had plans to go get lunch together because we were usually craving hamburgers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So yeah, I remember I had a regular OB appointment that morning. And I had been having some issues. So I went to the OB and um, he checked me out. And he said, you know, I really think you need to go right away and be induced today. So I remember calling Carrie and I said, Well, I can't go out for lunch with you today because I have to go to the hospital and get induced and have this baby. So
1: <laughs> And I remember was so super happy. Bad. Yes. I remember being so mad. I was, I'm a little competitive. I'm not quite that bad at now, but I was just like, this isn't fair. She's gonna have her baby before me. Like it really matters. But <laughs> um, so then our sons ended up being born 16 hours apart, basically in the same hospital. And I am almost positive that I, Evan was born at like 10, 16 PM or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That my contractions started. And I do remember sitting in the waiting room. we, Bruce and I finally went to the hospital about one 30 in the morning, my contractions were five minutes apart and they had no bed. So I'm sitting in a waiting room with your husband, Carl, on one side and my husband on the other. And they're talking while I'm breathing through my contractions. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell our listeners how you were introduced into the world of being a special needs parent?
0: So when Evan was born, he was very tiny. Uh, He was five pounds, 14 ounces. He had a very weak cry, but really we didn't think anything was wrong with him. We thought, he was the sweetest baby. He slept all the time. And when he cried, it was this really tiny little cry. We're like, this is amazing, you know? And um, when he was about three months old, he decided he didn't want to eat anymore. He wouldn't, didn't nurse very well at all. I would keep trying to nurse him and he wouldn't. He would arch his back and cry. And that just wasn't like him. Something was not right. And I remember taking him to multiple doctor's appointments and they would say, well, maybe it's reflux. We really don't know. You know." So I was giving him reflux medication, trying to figure out why he wasn't eating. And I went to a different pediatrician because my pediatrician was on vacation. And this pediatrician looked at him and he said, I really don't like the way he's breathing. Something's funny about the way he's breathing. I think you need to go and get him checked out as far as breathing. Well, We went, we got referred to the pulmonary clinic. They were looking at him and they said, he needs to be admitted right now because something is wrong where his diaphragm had, his liver had pushed up into his lungs and collapsed one of his lungs. So basically, he was choosing between breathing and eating because he couldn't do both and he was having to choose breathing. And um, so we realized that something really was wrong with our baby. But Honestly, when we went to the hospital and they said, well, we're going to have to push down his diaphragm and tack it down so he can breathe so his lungs will open up again. And you should be in the hospital for about a week and everything should be fine. Once we do the surgery, he won't have any more issues. He'll lead a normal life. So we're going into this hospital experience thinking it was only going to be one week long. And then we'd have our Perfectly healthy, normal child back with us. And um, after the surgery, they put him on a ventilator as a precaution because he had surgery on his diaphragm. And uh, when they tried to get him off the ventilator, he would just, his oxygen would plummet. He would have trouble breathing. He'd go into respiratory distress. And so they said, well, maybe he's so weak because he hasn't eaten in a long time. So let's give him a a week or two, feed him, get him strong again, and try taking him off the ventilator again. So they did that. Every time they tried to take him off the ventilator, he just would go into respiratory distress again. Um, I remember one of those times he did that. I was holding him, and um, all of a sudden, he just crashed, and he turned blue in my arms. And it was a really scary time. We were in the ICU for quite a long time. And um, that's when we started realizing that there was something more going on with him, that it wasn't just a problem with his diaphragm, that he really had something else going on. We were starting to notice that his fingers and his toes were curling and getting weaker. And uh, they ran a battery of tests. So we we they tested him for botulism, for West Nile virus, for polio. They just couldn't figure out what was going on? But they knew there was something deeper going on with him.
1: I remember when I think you guys left Columbus and went up to Cleveland to Rainbow Babies and had all those tests done up there too. Um, how old was Evan when he finally got a diagnosis?
0: While we were in the hospital, even going up to Cleveland, we we were trying to find answers to what was going on. Uh, We knew at one point that he wasn't able to be intubated through his mouth or his nose for much longer. So we were going to need to make the decision about getting him a trach. And that felt very permanent to us. It felt like, you know, something's really, really wrong if we need to have a trach for our baby. But um, we were able to go home three months after we went into the hospital We were able to take him home, but he was a much different baby when we got home than he was when we went into the hospital. He was dependent on a ventilator 24-7. He was tube fed. He had wires and tubes everywhere. So he was a very different baby. Uh, So we realized we still didn't have a diagnosis at that point, even when we went home. And it wasn't until... A few months later, when my sister-in-law was doing some research online, she's a nurse, so this was very interesting to her to fi- try to figure out what was going on with him. And she found a very rare muscular uh, neuromuscular disorder that she felt like fit what was going on with our son. And um, so she uh, she told us this information, and we were able to go uh, have our blood works into Germany and get it tested for this genetic disorder. And that really didn't come back till he was over a year old that we finally figured out that he has what's called spinal muscular atrophy with respiratory distress, which is a very rare genetic disorder. At that time, they said maybe 30 people worldwide had what he had. So uh, we really didn't know the prognosis of what it was going to be like. We just knew at that point we had a child that couldn't get off the ventilator and he was reliant on tube feeding, couldn't eat by mouth. So uh, we just had to take it one day at a time at that point to know what was going to happen.
1: How did it feel during that time of just the unknown of not having a diagnosis? Did it bother you that you didn't have a diagnosis till he was after a year old? No, you know, I think in a way it helped us. This sounds
0: funny, but it, To maybe have some kind of denial at that point that, well, since we don't have a definite diagnosis, there's a chance maybe he could get better. Maybe this is just a temporary thing where he can can get better. Maybe we'll start seeing improvement. Maybe we'll start seeing more movement in his arms and legs. And so I feel like the diagnosis was kind of a definite, this is what he has. He's not going to get better. So that was a hard part for us, I think, having a diagnosis that it was more permanent at that point.
1: It's interesting to me because, you know, this month on the podcast, we're talking about what we wish we would have known. And you and I had this discussion about, you know, our journey was so different. I had a prenatal diagnosis. And so now or each of us have a son and Evan and Connor are the same age. And then we get pregnant around about three months apart with our second kids. And those boys are healthy. And, you know, our oldest sons are friends, our second sons are friends. And then I get pregnant with Toby and all of a sudden, you know, I know what your life looks like with a trach and with a ventilator and a feeding tube. And now I'm reading all this stuff about how kids with a Chiari crisis can have all these things. And I remember praying so hard that Toby would not have these things, and I guess Evan and Toby are about what four, about four years apart, three and a half years or something somewhere around there. About yeah, about three and a half. Yeah. Um, and then so you and I have talked about how, first of all, I'm so grateful that you didn't have a baby <laughs> when I had Toby because right, you know, I need I needed you, but we've talked about how we're wired so differently. And like, I was glad that I knew when I was pregnant. And so were you happy you didn't know before you were pregnant? Like, how did, and like, you talked a little bit about that denial. And I can totally see that. I think a lot of our listeners who are listening now have gone through that same thing. There's a permanent sometimes in a diagnosis, but are you glad you didn't know in the early days of pregnancy? Yeah, I think I, I am glad that
0: I didn't know. I think for me, it would have been something I would have probably obsessed over and thought about and maybe not enjoyed as much of the, the process at the beginning, the, the, you know the labor, the delivery, the brand new baby stage. I would have been very worried about it and thinking about it, obsessing about it. And I was able to enjoy those for at least those three months when we thought everything was okay. And then I think for me, just as, you know, as things happened, it was kind of built up slowly in a sense. And so I was able to deal with one thing and then the next thing happened. Okay, we'll deal with the next thing. And it wasn't all at once. And even then, having the diagnosis later, um, I was able to get through. The, the first part of learning how to care for him before it was the permanent, this is what he has, he's going to have it for the rest of his life. It's terminal, you know, and not knowing after that what the prognosis would be.
1: Yeah, so I remember that you had a doctor say something really hard to you when Evan was still intubated. Are you okay with sharing that story? Would you share that? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So, I remember sitting in the ICU with Evan and my husband, Carl. And we were with a doctor, one of the doctors at the ICU. And we had to make that really hard choice of whether to put a trach in or not. He had been intubated for six weeks. And at that point, we had to make that choice. And even though it was a hard decision, um, as I talked to this doctor, she said, "Well, maybe that maybe you should not take him and let him go because sometimes," she said, "I think it's better for kids like this to play in heaven rather than suffer here on earth." And as she said that, Evan was looking through his crib bars and he was smiling at her. And for me that was just It was such a hard thing because I thought, no, my baby has so much life in him. He's smiling at you right now. There's a lot there. And um, I know, you know, everybody has to make their own choice. And there are times where that is the right choice. And I understand doctors have to present all the options. I get that. But at that moment, what I needed her to say was, if you want to trach this baby, you can do this. You can be a mom of a baby with a trach. I I believe in you. I I know that you can learn how to care for him, and you're gonna. It's gonna be okay. I needed that encouragement at that moment, and not somebody to tell me that maybe I should let him yeah. go.
1: So fast forward a little bit. Evans now 20, and he's in college. And so, what has your journey looked like just in the last 18 to 20 years? You guys still, he still has this rare diagnosis and all of that can you just give us a little bit of an overview of some of the ups and downs of the last several years with Evan Sure uh, I
0: I definitely think in the beginning it was all about his medical care you know we had to learn how to take care of a child with a trach and a ventilator I mean he was on the he's on the ventilator 24/7 so we had to learn all the medical side of caring for him which was exhausting and um, as he's gotten older, we've had to deal more with the emotional side. So we started out with that, that physical, the medical, and now it's emotional. When he was, you know, eight, nine, 10, he was having emotions about not being able to do what the other boys were doing, not being able to play soccer like his younger brother, not being able to uh, play video games like his friends because his hands were weak. So, There was a lot of um, the emotional side. And now as he's gotten older, it's interesting just to see the the different stages that we're going through. Right now, I would say that uh, there's a lot of anxiety because now that he's older, he knows the risks of things that could happen to him. I mean, if he comes disconnected from his ventilator, he cannot physically put it back on. He cannot breathe. So if there is nobody there, then... He will not be able to breathe, and he knows that. So there are things now that he's going through that um, cause him more anxiety than he had before. But you know, he was always a happy-go-lucky kid, and he still is. But there are things that are going through his mind now about what if, what if, which we didn't have to deal with before. So that's the new part of our journey, I would say, is dealing with his anxiety and his his questioning of what happens if this happens and um so there's different stages definitely through this journey that we've been through. Yeah,
1: for sure. I want to go back and just talk a little bit more about the importance of community and just you know the friendship that we've had um through the years and I you and I've talked about this I was going through my like box of letters and cards like I kept everything from those early days when Toby was in the hospital for 2 months and I found this letter from you and I'm going to try to read part of it and not cry. Um, The interesting thing is this is dated January 4th of 06. So this is actually just a few days before my birthday, which is probably what inspired you to write it. But it's also before we knew that we were both going to have kids with trachs, ventilators and feeding tubes, which is just crazy to me. And honestly, just some of the, I don't want to say you were prophesying, but just some of the things that you were speaking that have come to pass. And you just said, um... I was thinking about Toby and what a door of opportunity God has opened up to you. The things we experience in life, I believe, are meant to help us grow spiritually and also open up ministry opportunities. Because you were a teacher, you can relate to other teachers and those in the education world. Because you are a wife and mother, you have a ministry to wives and mothers. Now that you have Toby, God has opened up a new world of hurting people. This particular group of people needs so much encouragement and are hungry for hope. Sometimes I found that it can be quite draining. They need a lot at first, and I didn't want to take the ministry on partly because I didn't want Evan to be a special needs kid too late. Also, I didn't feel like I could deal with other people's burdens when I had so much of my own. But I have found that being able to help someone in tough circumstances has given me purpose and it gives our situation meaning too. And I just think that that is just so important. And you and I've, you know, we've talked a lot about how obviously God had a plan. He had a plan when I was friends with your mom and I knew her in college that our lives would overlap. And, you know, our oldest two sons just have this amazing friendship. Um, but you, do you remember writing this first of all? <laughs> yeah, I actually do.
0: I actually do remember.
1: It. Why do you think sometimes that we, um, struggle against just that, that ministry sometimes that God's calling us to when we go through something hard.
0: Well, I don't know. I think that it's hard because you're so engrossed in what you're going through at the moment that you're not thinking about how God can use that because it's just this, you know, it's so much right then. And um, I really feel like if you do change your perspective and think God, I know you're allowing this to happen. How can I use this to help somebody else? How can I reach out? Because that does give it purpose. That does give it meaning that you can reach out and help somebody else that might be going through something similar. Yeah.
1: How long did it take for that perspective for you to change? Was it gradual? I mean, or do you still kind of vacillate back and forth between those things?
0: Well, definitely. When we were in the thick of things, we were in the ICU, things were happening quick. Like That wasn't something I was thinking of at that moment. But once we got home, things settled down, and I started to be able to open my eyes a little bit and see, I'm not the only one here that is going through these things. There are other moms that have special needs kids, and and I wonder what their life is like. I wonder what they're dealing with. And kind of getting out of myself and my issues and all the things that we were dealing with and looking outside of that and saying, okay, how can I help somebody else? Because I know how it felt when I was in the thick of things and we were just living day to day and we were lacking sleep. We didn't have any sleep. We didn't know what was going to happen. How can I help somebody else Um, that might be going through that same thing? And then it's, it's, it feels easier then to deal with what I'm going through, being able to reach out and help somebody yeah. else.
1: So what's interesting, and I guess what our listeners probably don't know, is that, so when I finally had Toby, and were you involved in any support groups or anything between the time of Evan's birth and when you and I started our support group together? No. Okay. So, so Toby comes along and then I'm finding myself in this world of spina bifida, but not spina bifida, because all the kids that I look around and see that have spina bifida don't have trachs, don't have vents, don't have nursing care, don't have feeding tubes. They're not dealing with the medical complexities of... And I remember feeling so alone and so isolated. And thankfully, I had you. Can you explain the umbrella of Evan's diagnosis and why you didn't feel like you guys fit in there too?
0: Yeah, definitely. So... What Evan has is called spinal muscular atrophy with respiratory distress, and we've kind of been lumped into a group uh, with other people with spinal muscular atrophy or with muscular dystrophy, and really what Evan has is very different than those other neuromuscular diseases because for him, his diaphragm was paralyzed first, so he was on a ventilator right away and then it's his hands and his feet, and it kind of moves in from there. And so we didn't feel like we belonged in under any with any other group. Um, they tried to get us to go to different clinics at the hospital that would relate to those other groups, and, and nobody really knew about Evan. They didn't know how to help him, how to treat him necessarily, uh, because it was just such a rare, unique um, disorder that he had.
1: Yeah. So then we, you know, we find this connection and our group just I don't even know how it really grew. It never got very big, but we but basically we just started to get together once a month. Um I know what we had in common was that our kids were medically complex and that most of us had nursing care in our home. And that did allow us to get out at night alone without our kids. So that was, you know, a huge blessing. Um But what advice would you give? I, you know, we get questions a lot. I personally get questions about finding community. What advice would you give with a new mom who's just struggling to find community and connection? And she feels really isolated because maybe her child has behavior issues and, you know, or autism, extreme versions of autism, or they just live in a really small town and it's just hard to find people who are similar to her.
0: Well, I would say number one, pray about it. Um, I think that God will open your eyes and allow you to see things that maybe you hadn't seen before. Maybe there is somebody in the small community that you didn't even realize was dealing with something. And it might not be exactly what you're dealing with, but it might still be a special need that you can relate on some level with that person. Um, I remember... Carrie, you and I, we were, we took our kids to the zoo. Do you remember this? Yeah. And um, we were just having fun at the zoo. And then we noticed this mom and she had this baby with a trach. And so anytime we saw a child with a trach, we're immediately, you know, drawn to that person. And we started talking to the mom and we started talking about, well, what agencies do you have for nursing care? And then we had similar agencies and then we, you know. So we had these connections and, um, so that just happened organically. Like that was just us being out. And sometimes I do think, you know, moms have special needs, need just to get out of their comfort zone out and, and see, you know, because you do run into people and you can, if you know, if you're out of your comfort zone, you can just be like talking to them and see what what's going on with that other mom and make that connection. So we were able to make that connection even at the zoo and, um, kept that relationship with that mom. so Yeah,
1: yeah, we did. We've um, been friends with her for a long time. And I think that was one thing is we just think you've got to look sometimes for those opportunities and be willing to open up and reach out. I think so often we expect people to come to us because we feel so, you know, it's like you said, it's hard to bear somebody else's burdens when you have so many burdens yourself look outward instead of looking inward all the time. And when you can look around a little bit and kind of look up over the horizon of your own pain and your own suffering and say, okay, I, I need to connect with that mom because she's probably hurting just as much as I am. And we don't have to have everything in common. But when you start to look for those opportunities to um, not isolate yourself and, um, I mean, what do you think that requires of us to do that, to look outside of our pain? Well, I think the one thing that
0: we need to remember is when we aren't focusing on our own pain, it doesn't minimize the pain that we're going through. Yeah. It doesn't Mm. mean that we're not going through pain. And it doesn't mean that we aren't taking care of ourselves and taking care of what's going on in our lives, but to take kind of a pause and just being aware of other people around us. So that's not all focused on us. And so, and that's hard, I know, because it takes so much time and so much energy to deal with what we're already dealing with. And sometimes, you know, I feel like, well, I can't help somebody else because I am going through so much on my own. But I do think once we are able to do that, and uh, find somebody else that we can really encourage even if it's just something small like just a little connection we can make uh, that I think gives what we're going through purpose and meaning and um, makes it makes it feel like there's a there's a reason why we're going through this and to be able to help somebody else
1: yeah I can remember too just practically uh you know I would tell my social worker through this benefit the clinic if you ever have a mom who, They've got a baby with who goes through this and then ends up with a trach and a ventilator or some version of that. You need to send them my way because we do have this group. And and I think it does require us being vulnerable. And I think sometimes that's hard as moms because um, to be vulnerable takes energy. And on uh, another note on that too is that
0: we have to be okay if the other person doesn't want you know, doesn't want a conversation, doesn't want to connect. Because there are times at certain points in the journey, where you don't want, you know, you're still trying to figure out what's going on, like the point where I was where I don't want to be called a special needs mom, I don't want that label. Yeah. And I think there are moms at that point where, so if you reach out and you try to connect, and you get a brick wall, and you they don't want to connect, that's okay, too you know, give it time, maybe later, they'll be willing to open up and talk about it. But they might be at the point where they, they don't want this right now. And they don't want to associate with other moms of special needs kids. So you have to be okay with that, too.
1: I I know we've talked about this a little bit already. There is just that stage of denial in that cycle of grief. And honestly, I feel like we experience it many times throughout our journey. Yeah, you know, at different times. And it's interesting how um, I feel like it's very normal and very um, accepted, but I think it is really important for us not to stay in denial. Would you agree with that? And why or why not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I think for one reason, if you stay in the denial, then you are kind of inhibited from reaching out to other people. You're not yeah. able to because you're just kind of stuck in that I, that phase of, I don't really believe this is what's going on in my life. But once you accept that and just have are able to have that peace about it, then I think it's easier to reach out and, and help somebody else.
1: I think sometimes we just have to wait for um, you know, we've got to lament this to God because it is a change. You know, I don't want to be a special needs mom. I don't want this label. But then, when we can give it to the Lord and cry out, and you know, and kind of move past that stage, and not that we're not going to experience it again, but move through it, we can go. Okay, now um, I know I need support and help, and um, and then I think sometimes we're more willing to receive help and then, and then give help to others. So this has been such a great conversation. I'm just so grateful to have you on the podcast finally, after all this time <laughs> and our friendship spans about 25 years, which is just crazy. And I'm just so grateful to our boys are at the same college and they have this amazing friendship that they've been able to, it's just been such God given, I think on both sides. Um, but if one last thing, so, you know, the theme for this month has been, you know, looking back and what you would go back and tell yourself. So if there was one thing or maybe two, something that you would want to go back and tell yourself, what would it be?
0: It's okay. It's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. And God can use this. God can use yeah. whatever is going on in your life. And he can use it for, for good, for ministry, for, for helping other people. So it's it's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, that's so good. All right. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. And I'm so glad you were here. Yeah, thanks for having me.